Hi, welcome back. Michelle Sparks with you and I am doing the third of a three-part series called Scratching the Surface. Just exploring some of the precipitating factors that can be involved in the development of an eating disorder. It has been originally a YouTube um, series and so you'll notice that if you've been following this. I did want to make it available to my podcast listeners because I know some of you cannot access YouTube. Um, and that is a little bit difficult because some of it will obviously be visual. The visual medium does have some benefits, but um, hopefully you can catch something here that will be of value to you. So picking up where we left off. Just picking back up. So I was becoming more aware of the world at large and some of the media driven issues of my day were things like um, the threat of nuclear war, the threat of communism, the proliferation and use of drugs even amongst my school friends. Things that just made me feel a little bit unsure about the world that I was growing up into as an adult. And you know, that's a really typical part of feeling a bit anxious when you go from childhood into, through adolescence and into young adulthood, just, you know, you're growing up, you've left the safe, hopefully, shores of childhood, and I know not everyone's experience of childhood is the same. But you leave that and you're moving into adult life or early adult life and, you know, you start to become more aware of the world that you're growing up into. And so, for me, they were some of the issues that just rumbled around on the outskirts. They were definitely surface issues. Underneath all of this and much deeper for me was what was going on for me at home. Um, I'm in the middle of five children and... Uh, you know, my older sister and brother were out and about. My younger sister and brother were more dependent and unaware. But I remember being in the kitchen after school and watching mum. You know, I had a sense that she was struggling to cope with the stress of raising five children. And she would say things that just indicated to me that she was struggling. Now, I wasn't, you know, I was a young girl. I was 12 years old. But she would say things like... Um, You'll be sorry when I'm gone. You don't care how hard I have to work. You'll be the end of me. Um, and she and Dad would both say things like, you know, what have we done to deserve kids like you? And I would look around and think, yeah, gosh, you're good parents. You deserve to have good kids. And I just started to try and lift my game to be a better child, to be less of a burden. I could see that she was stressed. And from what she said and what she did, I could see how much she gave of herself. And I'm not blaming my mum. I think she did need more support at that stage. And I suspect now, you know, there's always more to the picture than meets the eye, but I suspect now, knowing her story, she watched her father die of a heart attack, uh, secondary to work-related stress. He'd had a breakdown and he, then he had a heart attack. He died in front of her. And, you know, I believe my dad was in a stressful job at this time. And I think my mum was trying to protect him from the stresses she felt at home raising five kids with all the demands that go with five kids. Um, you know, she kind of just kept everything kind of really running smoothly. And I don't know that she, that's just my sense of things. I think she was putting her stress out there and I was catching the ball. And I think perhaps she was trying to protect my father from stress because she didn't, she'd seen her own dad die from work-related stress and um, I think she was just trying to protect my dad but long story short I picked up that ball oh I need to be a better kid and none of the other kids seem to be taking this too seriously so I better pick up the game and you know take the load off my mum for all of us now she couldn't have known this and um, I didn't remember it for a lot of years but 
I was carrying something even deeper underneath the surface for me. I had actually been holding myself responsible for someone drowning when I was six years old. It's a long story as well. You can read about it in the book. But um, long story short, I, I was holding myself responsible for someone drowning out the back of South Curl Curl. And, um, long story short, it's hard to explain this just, you know, quickly, but um, when I saw my mum saying things and struggling to cope and saying things like, you'll be the end of me and you don't care how hard I have to work, I, it really fell on sensitive soil for me because I was already feeling responsible, guilty and responsible for someone drowning. Fact is, I was not responsible for someone drowning, but I didn't know that. I think I carried that guilt for about 25 years. It's a very interesting story. And I don't want to go into it now because I'm going to get sidetracked. But um, I did actually ask my mum and dad to give me a belting for a while when I was about six or seven. And I think that's because and they would say, Michelle, you haven't done anything deserving a belting. But I would actually uh, ask them if they could give me a belting so I could go to sleep. So what's evident to me there is that by the tender age of six or seven, I was already feeling guilty. And when I remembered that, it really through me. It was like, wow, I knew the guilt trip. I sort of knew my anorexia was a, a guilt trip and that I wasn't feeling good about myself and I was feeling very unentitled to the life I had. But I didn't understand why in a family of five I particularly ran with that particular ball. But um, yeah, so something was going on in my past that my mum wouldn't have even known about. So there she was, stressed out and saying things. I'm in early high school. I'm hearing her cries for help, if you like. And because I'm already sensitized by an experience that's happened earlier, that I obviously felt guilty enough about to ask, you know, my parents give me a belting so I could go to sleep. And um, my dad didn't do that, by the way. But I think I exacerbated him to the point where he would give me a little bit of a pat on the back. And I don't know, for some reason I couldn't sleep without that for a short period of time. I suspect mum and dad were really uncomfortable with that. And perhaps if it had gone on longer, they would have got me seen by someone to say, hey, what's going on? She's asking us for a belting. That's a bit unusual. And it was. It's a certain sign to me now that I was feeling guilty and needed some help and some support right back then. There's so much to share. But the point of all that is for me, as I was showing you before, there's surface factors. So for me, puberty, getting rejected, being chased by a guy, becoming more aware of the world at large. And then there's deeper issues, my place in the family, how I'm looking and, and understanding life in my family home and mum and dad's stress and where I fit into that and my own background and my own history of feeling responsible already for some, something bad happening. And therefore, when I hear mum saying things, I feel like, wow, I've got to really lift my game because I can't afford to be responsible for my mum going or not surviving. And the other part of that equation, very big part of my history was that I was raised in, um, I had a religious um, upbringing, just pretty regular Catholic school upbringing, but I started to take on board some interesting ideas in year seven, particularly about that. And I had a teacher who had been a missionary and she used to teach us some pretty interesting stuff and I'm not blaming her, it's a whole lot of factors coming together. That at the end of the day, I felt like, wow, if I could just be a good enough child, how good's good enough? There's no ceiling on how good I could be. So I just kept pushing out for, you know, in every area, at school, at sport, 
academically, at home, in every area, I was just trying to be good. But how good is good enough? I just kept pushing out. And food and weight were just part of that. I was just trying to exercise more control, be less selfish. And, you know, it did make me feel better initially, but it was like chasing uh, my tail. And I ended up going down the scales, as you can see. But they are some of the surface and deeper factors that were part of my journey into this space. The problem is once you get on the eating disorder path, yeah, so the problem is once you get on that path, you can very quickly um, find yourself just getting more and more out of control. You know, the food restrictions and the rules come to circumscribe your life and you can really get lost on the treadmill and forget why you even began there. Um, so that's just a little bit of a background. So surface factors, deeper factors, and what would be really interesting would be to understand how you resonate with what I'm sharing. Um, I'd love your feedback. It would be a great idea for you to maybe think about your story. Um, when did you start to feel like food control was a solution? What was going on in your life at that time? How did controlling food seem to help? And when did that solution start to backfire? What has happened for you that you are now listening to me and hopefully starting to think about, okay, I don't want to continue on this path. It's not taking me where I want to go. And I can tell you, there is a way better life for you than being stuck in any part of the eating disorder paradigm. So love your feedback. Um, love your questions. You can follow me on Twitter or hit me up on Twitter, give me some questions or, you know, give me some feedback, mp underscore sparks. You can come to my website, michellesparks.com. There's quite a bit of material there that you can just access. Um, you can obviously subscribe to my YouTube channel and um, you can also come to my iTunes podcast. Uh, yeah, so until next time, travel well. Yeah.